Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special Antifada Christmas special. We are here today, of course, with myself, Sean KB, and also... I'm AP Andy. Merry Christmas, Sean. And we have a very special guest, of course, Dave Silverberg, calling in from Chicago. How's it going, man? It's going pretty good. How's it going? I'm Thanks for having me. First uh, time, long time. I'm feeling pretty excited. Are you guys all excited for uh, the celebration of the Christmas holiday this year? Yeah, we're going to go a wassailing. We're going to tell tales of ghost stories for some reason. That's that's in the song, too. That's what you heard Christmas is about? Yeah. And so, Dave, why don't you, before we begin, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and your work? Then afterwards, uh, hopefully Santa will come and give us our topic. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so yeah, my name is David Silverberg, uh, and I study religious discrimination uh, all over the world, but particularly in India and Europe, which uh, requires a bit more explanation than we'll probably have time to do right now. Uh, but yeah, okay, and so. uh, I'm working on some stuff around that that hopefully will be published relatively soon. Okay, great. Uh, so yeah, maybe we'll talk about... Uh... Oh, what's that I hear? Is those, are those sleigh bells? I Oh my God, I hear sleigh bells. Somebody's up on the roof. Who in the world? I hear something. I hear some rustling in the chimney. Want to come down now? <laughs> oh, here comes Santa. He's coming down the chimney. He's coming down the chimney. I, I see. I, I, can, I can hear the reindeer oh, it's old stomping Nick. their cute little feet. And uh, oh my God, there he is. There's Santa with his big beard. Oh, oh, oh. Santa. Oh, it's Santa. Hello, oh my, God. my little Antifada children. What a special Christmas event. <laughs> we do this every Christmas. You remember? I remember, uh, Santa. I come down the chimney and bring you a Christmas topic to podcast about. Yay. That's so exciting. Uh, Santa, 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 What? what's the Christmas topic this year? Allow me to open my big Santa Claus gift sack and pull it out. It's, oh, why, look at this. Oh, this is exciting. What is it, Santa? This year, your topic is the Ho-Ho-Holocaust. Oh, Santa. Thanks, Santa. Wow. Wow. You really didn't expect that. You read my letter. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Oh, bye. He's going up the chimney. Oh, he's going. I, oh, I hear the, the, those reindeers. They're getting ready to go. Oh, all right. Well, they're flying off the roof. Oh, off he goes back up to the North Pole. Well, that was that was so special. Thank you, Santa Claus, for uh, coming and, and giving us this. What was the topic again? It's Santa Claus, I think. <laughs> yeah. rest is best. <laughs> Better Santa Claus than Schwarze Pete, right? Yeah. <laughs> what exactly was uh, that topic? I, I'm not sure I, I recall. The Ho Ho Holocaust. Oh, Jesus Christ. Really? Yeah. Is that something you want to talk about, Dave? It's a terrible topic and such small portions. <laughs> well, if we're going to do this, guys, I mean, you know, this was kind of thrust upon us. Who really wants to talk about Holocaust denial and uh, what the French call negationism? Uh, yes, there is yeah, no way I would I mean, ever talk about this topic, especially with Andy. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say we have to talk about that, but if, if that's what you want to talk about, we can talk about the the left wing Holocaust denial tendency, the the left negationists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I could I could throw something together. Let's let's start here, okay? All right. 
So a man by the name of Pierre Guillaume of the Parisian bookseller Le Vieux Taupe, which is, of course, the old mole, as in that famous phrase from Marx, well dug old mo, mole, old mo. Uh, <laughs> Pierre Guillaume. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, this French bookseller managed to get the entire, the whole ultra-left milieu in France in hot water for publishing and defending an example of what the French call negationism. Le- which is uh, unfortunately denial or revision of the Shoah. Uh, He did this in the mid-1970s into the 1980s. Now, the problem and the reason why the ultra-left got pulled into this massive scandal and debate in France is because Pierre Guillaume of Le Vieux Taupe based his position of uh, revising the Holocaust on a reading of Bordiga, or at least somebody who had been writing collectively under the Bordigast banner. And the name of that Bordigast uh, essay is very, very unfortunate. It is Auschwitz, the Grand Alibi. Sounds normal. Uh, that's, that's an oof moron for me, fan. That doesn't sound so great. <laughs> so uh, happy at the same time in the 1970s, uh, there was a birth, really the birth of mainstream Holocaust revisionism. And you're seeing the rise of such pseudo-historical amateur journals as the Institute for Historical Review, you know, which sounds like a very normal, like regular yeah, normal. historical. Just reviewing history just, just normally. Re- it's an institute for doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, there was just basically like a, uh, a publishing house for largely anti- anti-Semitic, but definitely Holocaust revisionist texts. In the 70s in France, you also saw a guy by the name of Jean Le Pen, uh, father of uh, current National Front uh, leader in France, the neo-fascist party, Marine Le Pen. Uh, the, the Front National was really rising at this time, too, in the 70s. So this Forizan affair, as it came to be called, roiled the media as the French press went on the lookout for a horseshoe theory connection between these ultra-right Holocaust denialists and, as it turns out, post-situationists, communizers, and bordigists. So this whole episode is most remembered in the United States for implicating none other than Noam Chomsky, whose essay of general defense of free speech rights was inserted into the preface of Robert Forzone's 1980 Holocaust revisionist book denying the gas chambers. So this is just the like the Harper's letter 30 years ago, yeah, 40 years ago, basically. It's like yeah. the same thing. <laughs> he, like he signed this petition saying, uh, "I defend this academic's rights to publish his research and speak freely," and then he just got completely looped into this milieu of. Uh, uh, of people who are very sympathetic to a Holocaust denier. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it, you could take that many many different ways. You could say, well, like, oh, this free speech debate we're having now has its roots here, or at least it was just as crazy, you know, 40 years or whatever. Or you could say, if you're sympathetic, that we're having the same free speech type problems. But we're not going to get into all that, right? Uh, but the point is that Noam Chomsky gave a kind of Glenn Greenwald type defense of free speech and even went so far as to absolve this Holocaust denier for his own of anti-Semitism. And as a result, and this might be why you hear of the for his own affair at this late date, Noam Chomsky's been tarnished with uh, anti-Semitism for this episode by some on the American right to this day. So that's the affair, right? 
up until the last decade or so, it was easy to see this whole affair as a regrettable historical interlude. Like many affairs. That's right. Uh, <laughs> bedroom or otherwise. A, mini, a French mini-scandal from a different time. But in recent years, we've seen a full-throated return in the mainstream discourse of charges of left anti-Semitism. This anti-Semitism is portrayed not as an accidental affair, but increasingly as built into the anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist project itself. The fact that the leader of the Labour Party, former leader anyway, Jeremy Corbyn, was effectively smeared with this charge and even suspended recently from the party shows how successful this campaign has been. And by the way, I think uh, in just the last few days, more members of the left wing of the Labour Party have been expelled, including left-wing anti-Zionists. And I looked into this a little bit, and uh, as far as I can tell, they were not... Because some people were expelled from labor by Corbyn in 2016 for saying explicitly or implicitly anti-Semitic things. Ken Livingstone was. But this this current purge is against people who think that... who are saying that uh, these expulsions are politically motivated and that the way anti-Semitism is being talked about or charged in the Labor Party is not accurate or is overblown. So they're being they're being purged for doubting uh the validity of the purge. Right. It's it's reached a real Ouroboros level of uh attack and purging over there. And their their media is just lousy with conversation of this. It's like a huge national scandal. Unfortunately, uh this charge of left anti Semitism has been foisted upon none other than myself, a co host of the Antifada. In fact, I got a uh t- by me. By Andy. <laughs> I got it. In fact, just the other day on Twitter, uh, I got this tweeted at me by a uh, supporter of mon- modern monetary theory. He says, quote, Marxism casts money, law, and media as superstructural phenomena, unproductively leeching off the real economy. It's not consciously anti-Semitic, but it's analogical relation to anti-Semitic logics, that's a really tortured prose right there, shows up symptomatically in all kinds of ways, right? So that's some real modern monetary hours right there. He's saying the entire Marxist project from head to toe is kind of unconsciously anti-Semitic. The fact that he puts money, of all things, for Marx in a superstructural category, let's just move past that, right? But the charge is out there. So This episode that we're going to do, um, thanks to Santa coming down with his uh, magical gift bag and giving us the gift of a topic, uh, is going to beg the question, is there some fundamental connection between the left broadly or Marxism in particular to anti-Semitism? And we can use this uh, Forazan fair as a jumping off point. So before I pass it to Andy and Dave, I want to share this long quote uh, by Gilles Dove, who's uh, La Banquiste Journal was at the time accused of negationism by the French press, right? Uh, All these ultra-leftists, all of a sudden, because they had associated with, like Guy Debord had with uh, Le Vieille Taupe guy, all of a sudden all the French press who had never paid any attention to these small sects of people were like reading all of their words and and trying to to blow up their spot. But uh, Gilles Dove defends uh, this quasi-Bordigas reading of the connection between the Holocaust and capitalism while he denies denial. So this is Jill Dove uh, in the 1990s. We are, we are to blame for thinking that Nazism is condensed capitalism and could only have been avoided by revolution. 
for thinking that mankind can only escape present and future bloody dictatorships by overthrowing capitalist society. Is it just a matter of vocabulary? Surely not. Suppose in order to avoid using the word capitalist, we had said, the existing society, the 20th century, the modern world produced Auschwitz. The Inquisition would have unfolded just the same. What is unacceptable is to trace the Nazi horror to its source, the world disorder based on capitalism. Too many people have a vested interest in explaining Nazism in terms of hatred, rejection of otherness, the politics of exclusion, and anti-Semitism, in short, by the Nazis. Consequently, in France today, they want Le Pen's National Front to be fought not by attacking the society which produces it, but by defending this society against it and logically end up supporting the left, the center, and any moderate politician as long as he opposes the extreme right. Yeah, so um, I think that's a, that's a good way to frame kind of the roots of this tendency. Uh, and I, I wanted to kind of contribute uh, to this arbitrary topic um, that I'm always ready to talk about, as are you. <laughs> In, indeed. Uh, by framing like the origins of why Bordigists might take the position they took in the Auschwitz, the the super alibi or whatever it's called, and that the soup, and then uh, Jill Dove, of course, like uh, riffing off of that in this defense of himself. But yeah, I, th- I think Dove nails it that the the question is about anti-fascism and um, the Bordiga and his tendency, of course, before the war was were critical of anti-fascism specifically the anti-fascist popular front, the idea that uh, socialists and communists need to align with the liberals and and set aside their political differences in order to defend liberal democracy from fascism. This was a, this was something that the board against more than anybody were firmly against, you know, the, the anarchists in Spain joined the popular front joined uh, some of them actually went into the government in Spain. Uh, The Trotskyists were very critical of anti-fascism, but they, joined and supported anti-fascist organizations because they believed that fascism would crush the workers' movement and even, you know, kill an immense amount of people, including Jews, systematically. Um, But the Bordigists were always resistant to this kind of thinking. Uh, And uh, you can read my essay, uh, Anti-Anti-Fascism, that I'll put in the notes, that um, talks, uh, goes into a little bit more detail about that. During the war, this, this position that fascism is just like capitalist dictatorship, so it's like a more authoritarian version of the political democracy, and that it in no way impedes the chances of, of a worker revolution, uh, basically like trying to remove the, the strong contrast between liberal democracy and fascist dictatorship, um, I think that's kind of a, it's a hard argument to make. Uh, and I think after the war, um, very few people sympathized with that argument, and as a result, the kind of anti-fascist logic they were so resistant to before the war came back. Uh, but the difference was there wasn't really a, a moment where fascism was on the rise throughout Europe. You know, it was illegal uh, in, in a lot of places. You, you, you know, the fascist parties were outlawed. They had to regroup and like slowly work their way back. They had to form secret societies. You know, yeah. and even the National Front <clears throat> got in trouble for doing Holocaust denial. They were like a neo-fascist party in mm-hmm. France. So um, basically, I think this essay was written in the context of looking at the logic of Popular Front anti-fascism that portrays the, the Shoah, the, specifically the, the extermination of Jews during the Holocaust, as this thing that kind of stands outside. It's like a, a specific kind of aberration 
of capitalist society. So it's saying you can still fight capitalism, you can still fight for socialism or whatever, but we always have to be on the lookout for fascism and always, you know, before everything else, defend liberal democracy against the specter of fascism. So it's essentially criticizing that. And the way that it does it is it says that the, it does say that the Holocaust happened, that 6 million Jews died, that there was gas chambers, but it tries to completely remove the uh, specificity of anti-Semitism from that argument, or at least make that anti-Semitism incidental to the, uh, the way that class decomposed and recomposed in Nazi Germany leading up to the Holocaust, to the point where they actually say in the essay... It wasn't that the earth didn't have room anymore for Jews, but capitalist society, and for their part, not because they were Jews, but because they were rejected from the process of production, useless to production. So although it does make some kind of materialist claims for why anti-Semitism was a factor, they're essentially saying that Jews were uh, perceived or were mostly middle class uh, or petty bourgeois in Germany, that the the petty bourgeois was a transitory class that was being liquidated. And so in order to save some room in that class, the German petty bourgeois threw the Jewish petty bourgeois to the wolves. So, so yeah, this, this essay was inspirational to the left-wing strain of Holocaust denial going forward, uh, taking this point that the anti-Semitism was incidental to saying that actually the, the Holocaust may have been exaggerated or may not have happened, that, that there were no gas chambers at all. And this the specter of the Holocaust is just uh, the spectacle, something like it's, it's something to justify existing capitalist social relations and imply that everything's better because we're not living in a concentration camp after all. And Peter Kiyom's point, all of capitalist society is a great concentration camp. And so uh, whether the Holocaust happened or not, it's distracting us from the real conditions that are in front of us. Yeah, this is like real quick quote from um, from La Vie et Taupe uh, here, citing Guy Debord of all people. Uh, a financial newspaper was and still is called Le Capital. Capitalism has never denied its own existence. On the contrary, as soon as it becomes conscious of itself through the works of Smith and Ricardo, far from denying its existence, capital proclaims itself natural and eternal. And now he's referring here to uh, the work of Society of the Spectacle, the works of Guy Debord. Debord and I discussed this precise point in Ricardo's work, but this sentence by Debord would take on its full meaning if you replace the word capitalism by words referring to the ideology and mono-ethnic organizational structures that pretend to be representatives of the Jewish community, but who seem to have tied their fate to the development of capitalism and are nowadays widely involved in its moral rearmament thanks to a victim ideology of their own. So this is where uh, Pierre uh, Guillaume really jumps the shark now, and he says basically, if Guy Debord had simply just put Jews in there instead of capitalism, then he would totally agree with me. Well, he goes farther than that. This is this is a really good essay. Um, it's on the, the Not Board site, which, which chronicles a lot of like situationist-related things. Um, the essay, up until that point, is kind of just a history of this guy's relationship with DeBoer, because DeBoer hung out at their bookstore in the 60s, and uh, they had some kind of relationship, uh, just like Dave did. But it seems like at some point, yeah, Guillaume becomes like really interested in publishing Holocaust denial more than anything else. And then everyone kind of backs away from him. But he is trying to say that they all secretly agreed with him. Um, and so at that point in the essay, he just reveals himself to be a total crank. Yeah, He's saying, look at, look at what the board's saying here. If you read between the lines, 
you'll see it actually is about Holocaust denial, and he actually agrees with me, <laughs> even though it's not mentioned in the text. And, and, and DeBoer lives another like 25 years after, or 20 years after this, and never right. says that he agrees with the negationism or anything. In fact, um, there's a text by Dave where although they, you know, they defend this position from the, the great alibi text, they denounce uh, Holocaust denial, and the author of that Bordigas text, uh, David Axelrod. <laughs> no, what's his name? <laughs> I know who you're talking about. Uh, Matt Axelrod. Uh, John Axelrod? Martin Axelrod. Martin Axelrod, who wrote the, the Great Alibi essay, also denounced the left negationists and said that the Holocaust absolutely did happen, and that's not the point of the essay. So I guess at this point, maybe we can turn it over to Dave and, and see if you have any thoughts about this, specifically the question of was this tendency of left-wing Holocaust denial, was it just an aberration, or is it accurate to say that there are strains of anti-Semitism that exist throughout the left's history? You know, there's there's a couple different things that are going on in the Auschwitz Great Alibi text, and some of them are totally non-objectionable, and some of them are, right? So I think, uh, you know, the ending of the article, to me, which is the part that stands out as like, oh, okay, you know, just sort of says something to the extent of um, they hold up lamps made of human skin uh, in our faces in order to, you know, make us forget that it's capitalism that first of all turns living labor and humans into commodities. Right. Uh, and that part seems totally fine. I mean, that I, I don't actually find anything objectionable about that. I think the thing that is difficult about the text and then this, this entire affair sort of makes um, much sharper, right. Is trying to make sense of the explanation then for what was actually happening during the Holocaust, right? Because if the if the question is, uh, you know, does the Holocaust have something to do with capitalist society? The answer seems to be a resounding yes, right? Uh, for anyone who's thinking about it in any kind of serious way. The question, though, is then why Jews and why anti-Semitism and why does it function in this particular way, right? And what the text then does and kind of goes off the rails. Uh, is it sort of just says, well, you know, it could have been anybody, which that doesn't really, uh, <laughs> it doesn't really tell us much or it's not really an explanation at all, right? It just sort of is a hand wavy way of saying, well, you know, whatever. And I think that what's sort of interesting about this uh, passage that you were just reading, um, you know, where we're brutally misquoting DeBoard, uh, is that this is actually that idea of like, like well, if you just took the word capital, or you just took the word capitalist and you replaced it with the word Judaism and Jew, uh, then, you know, everything is far more explainable, right? And that particular tendency uh, has a very, very, very long history on the left, on the right, with everybody, right? So this is not unique to the left, but it's, it's definitely part of the history of the left. Um, and as it turns out, yeah, did did uh, like Marx ever write anything about this <laughs> this Jewish question we're talking about? Why, yes, he most certainly did. And what was the name of that essay? On the Jewish question. Oh, okay. Wow, that really and wraps this up in a bow. Interesting. You have anything to say about that? Why, yes, I certainly do. <laughs> um, yeah. So, on the Jewish question, uh, just. Really quick to also be clear, on the Jewish question is probably, in my opinion, one of the most misinterpreted uh, 
texts written by Marx. Uh, and there are historical reasons for this mis- these types of misinterpretations. Yeah, it was, it was actually uh, published by anti-communists. It was like, look at what Marx said. And it was like the one thing that you could find from Marx. Right. No, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a version of this text, which is like heavily, heavily mistranslated and edited, uh, called A World Without Jews, which is the first thing that comes up on the Google search result page. Uh, and it's, it's written by this total crank, I think like Romanian uh, exile philosopher guy, you know, who it's really funny because the introduction to it is like, you know, by the eminent philosopher, I've never heard of this guy. His name is like Dogbert uh, (laughs) Pumpernickel or something like that. It's, you know, it's bizarre. Um, But, you know, just as a sort of preface, one of the most common (laughs) uh, interpretive errors that comes up immediately when people are talking about this text is the text is called On the Jewish question. Yeah. Right. And what I mean by that is the Jewish question is the name of something else. Right. And Marx is talking about the something else. He's not raising the Jewish question. What Marx is doing is he's addressing a text written by a guy named Bruno Bauer. He's actually addressing two texts by Bruno Bauer. Uh, one is called the Jewish question. The other one is called uh, on the capacity of Jews and Christians to become free, something like that. Um, so, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is when Marx is weighing in on this debate, right? Marx is not raising the issue of whether Jews have something to do with what he's going to eventually develop into a criticism of capitalism. Uh, but rather what Marx is doing is intervening in debates that already exist, right? And the debate that he's intervening into specifically, he picks this guy, Bruno Bauer, because Bruno Bauer is, in Marx's estimation, one of the smartest people in Germany, who has the best understanding of Hegel, who has the best understanding of society. Uh, Bauer is one of these young Hegelians that Marx goes on to pretty brutally denounce uh, in uh, Holy Family and in uh, German ideology, which I don't know if you've ever tried to read the German ideology, uh, but I did recently. And thank God for people writing books about that book, because if you actually look at it, I think most people who read it are familiar with the little section that, you know, has all the stuff about ideology, et cetera, that gets quoted all the time. But then the book is an additional 400 pages. That's just a close reading of Stirner. Right. Uh, It's truly petty. Like, just like, no, this is so dumb. I'm going to show you word by word why it's dumb. It's like, who would want to read that except Andy? (laughs) exactly Uh, real quick though i want to say just uh the new michael heinrich biography of marx actually makes the case for and it this case i think spans the first volume which is published into the second one that isn't yet that actually uh marx was a very close friend with bruno bauer and in fact bruno bauer and his influence on marx was a sort of transitional phase for him in between you know his his studies of romantic art and his and marx's poetry into this sort of engagement with Hegel. So him, him writing this in criticism of Bauer, I mean, it's, it wasn't published in his lifetime, but this shows a definitive break for Marx, like from, from his early writings into like the economic manuscripts and, and things of that sort. So Bauer like looms very large in the Marx story, according to Michael Heinrich. Yeah, no, and I think that's exactly right. Um, the, the story of Marx is on some level, uh, his finding people that he thinks are smart and then really savagely denouncing them. Uh, you know, the other famous example is 
you know, he finds Bauer and all these guys, all the young Hegelians, and he says, ah, finally, people who really know what's going on. And then he says, ah, you young Hegelians, you're all a bunch of morons. You don't know anything. You know who really knows who has real scientific socialism? Proudhon. Mm. And we and know then, how that ended up. Yeah, exactly. And then so on and so forth. Um, so exactly. Marx is really enamored with Bauer and with this young Hegelian thing. And that's sort of what then causes him to come up against all of these problems that are internal to the interpretation of Hegel uh, among the young Hegelians, right? And sorry, I lost my train of thought. Let's no, no, cut that take part. Um, okay, let me think. Where were we? So we're on Bauer. We're on right. uh, critique of the. Yes. Okay. So. Marx is absolutely uh, into Bauer. He's into all the young Hegelian guys. And he's particularly into uh, Feuerbach, who is a name that I think a lot of people are familiar with just by virtue of the fact that Marx's theses on Feuerbach uh, you know, end with this very, very famous line that everybody you know, likes to recite of, you know, philosophers up until this point have just interpreted the world. The point is to change it, right? Um. And in this sort of engagement with Bauer, Marx takes Feuerbach and he takes uh, all this stuff from sort of the German idealist tradition. And this is where he starts to say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. In fact, this is actually bad, right? And what you end up with uh, is a text that's it's difficult, right? And it's difficult in the sense that it has two parts, right? You have these two critiques of these two pieces by Bauer, but they're usually published right next to each other as one text. When they were written, they were written more or less as one text. Uh, and the issue becomes that the first text, most people agree on the general broad strokes of what it means. Uh, but the second text is the one where Marx gets accused of being an anti-Semite. Uh, because in this one, he says quite explicitly, uh, things that out of context sound very, very anti-Semitic, right? Like he says that the emancipation of the Jews will be the emancipation of humanity from Judaism. Mm. And in order to understand what this actually means and why he's saying this, you need to actually understand what he's saying in the rest of the text, right? And the text itself, you know, the, the Jewish question, so let's just start with that, right? The Jewish question, insofar as it is a question, is can Jews who are Jews and not Christians, can they become subjects of the state? Jews for Jesus was and, not a thing at this point. Not yet. Sorry, say that one more time. Jews for Jesus was not yet a thing. Yes, no, and no Jews for Jesus yet. That was, uh, that was the, a solution to the Jewish question. <laughs> the best solution, even. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Well, we'll do the bonus about, uh, <laughs> about your coming exactly. out as a Jew for Jesus. Crypto Jews, the best Jews. That's well, what the Spanish I mean, thought. Uh, According to some interpreters, Marx is basically a Jew for Jesus, right? He's a Messianic Jew of some stripe. Sure, the uh, millenarian revolutionary tradition. Yeah. So the way that this debate usually played out in Europe was something to the extent of, uh, well, no, of course Jews can't become citizens because Jews have this narrow particular nature that prevents them from becoming citizens, right? So... A Christian uh, is able to engage in some broader community or from the perspective of Bauer and these young Hegelians who are very, very anti-religion. 
uh, they say, well, no, the issue is our state isn't even the secular state. So it's, there's a problem there. Right. And then for the Christians, they have to give up Christianity and, you know, sort of undertake a criticism of Christianity and then they can become citizens. Now the Jew is in, is sort of a problem, right? Because for the young Hegelians and for Hegel uh, and for Feuerbach, particularly for Feuerbach, you have this sort of schematic model of religion and of society that says that basically first there was the law, which was Judaism. Then there was the criticism of the law, which was Christianity. And then there's the criticism of Christianity, which is the state, right? So we have a sort of successive stage model here, uh, which I'm sure many of the people listening to this are familiar with the idea of stages being somehow related to stuff related to Marx, right? So the idea here is that what Bauer says basically is the state that we have is not good enough. It, it fails to live up to the ideal of what it would actually mean to be a state. And at the same time, uh, the Jews, of course, they can't become emancipated until they become Christians first, and then they give up Christianity. And Marx basically looks at this and he says, this is incoherent. This is absolutely ridiculous. What are you talking about? Right? And he does it the way that early Marx usually does it, which is by recapitulating Bauer's argument and saying, wow, this is so brilliant. This is so smart. And then as the text goes on, uh, poking massive, massive holes in it until at the end of it, he's saying, look, this is stupid. Right. Marx was so, a, he was a misunderstood edgelord basically. <laughs> Marx was in fact a misunderstood edgelord. He was doing ruthless yeah. critique of all of his best friends. Ba I mean, basically. Yeah. Right. And the thing is that on the Jewish question is this really interesting moment, because I think that, like you said, if, if this is what Heinrich says about Marx, and I haven't read that particular Heinrich thing, uh, I think that's absolutely right, because you can actually see over the course of on the Jewish question and then into uh, the text that immediately follow it, which is like critique of Hegel's philosophy of right and theses on Feuerbach, uh, you can see that Marx is actually becoming incredibly disillusioned with the sort of Hegelianism as it stands with the young Hegelians. And it's explicitly around this issue of their anti-Judaism, right? So anti-Judaism actually becomes this way of, I mean, let's call it what it is, anti-Semitism, right? Becomes this way in which Marx is able to break with everybody else before him. Uh, so whether you know Marx was personally an anti-Semite or not, is sort of besides the point, because what ends up happening is Marx develops this kind of very uh, complicated theoretical critique of anti-Semitism as a political position. And that's what sort of, I would argue, allows him to move past the sort of uh, strict way of thinking about the world that he's stuck in before that by working you know, within the frame of the young Hegelians. So uh, Marx as a as a person maybe not absolved, but Marx as a theorist absolved of anti-Semitism. Sure. Okay. Right, cool. You heard it here first, folks. Well, next time there you get you a right winger in your mentions, you can uh, send them this episode. But I think this this is a really important point because it's absolutely the case that a lot of people who are accused of anti-Semitism, even for, for good reasons, if they say something like, well, you know, the bankers control the world, you know, that's not on its face anti-Semitism. And the person who says it may not be anti-Semitic. In fact, they might be like a religious Jew, you know. 
But there's this idea that goes to, uh, I think it's attributed to Marsha Pistone, of structural anti-Semitism, which is, it's not saying that like that Jewish person there, let's kill him or whatever. It's saying, it's employing these old anti-Semitic tropes of their, uh, of the protocols of the elders of Zion, of Jews, of equating Jews with finance, of equating finance as the central problem of capitalism. So basically fetishizing Jews as an ethnicity, as a class, and saying that this class is actually the problem. And if we can get rid of them, then we'll be okay. Now that doesn't, if you can, if you have a complaint about bankers or finance capitalism, that doesn't make you anti-Semitic. Mm. But this idea of structural anti-Semitism is that there's a certain kind of arguments that mystifies capitalist social relations to the extent that uh, you can attack this aspect of capitalism, be it finance capital or, or whatever, and leave capitalism intact. And this is precisely what the, the Nazis did to command anti-capitalist energies that were so popular in the Weimar period into their program and into their final solution. Yeah. Dave, uh, are you prepared to transition to Postone or did you have more on, on the Jewish question? I have an infinite amount more. <laughs> so um, how do you want to... I feel like I missed all of the parts I wanted to actually say. Well, well, why don't you wrap up on it then and, uh, and like give us some more bullet points for, to, to take away from this text? So the dominant received idea of, on the Jewish question, uh, there's really there's two ways of interpreting the text. Um, and these are both, I would say, related to, um, let's call them creative misreadings. Uh, if we're being generous, I would say mistakes, uh, but interpretive mistakes that are internal to Marxism rather than Marx, right? Uh, as an interpretive strategy. And the two dominant readings, one is to say, well, okay, what Marx is arguing in this text, because Marx does argue something like this, it's just not the only thing he argues, is that, of course, Jews can be emancipated. Because what Bauer is talking about, right, is this political question of can Jews become citizens? And Marx says, yes, of course they can. Uh, and in fact, the fact that they can become citizens, even given what you are saying about them, actually proves that political emancipation isn't actually human emancipation. It doesn't get us out of the problems of society and of alienation and of all these sort of things that the young Hegelians are concerned with. Uh, the, but the question of, you know, can Jews become political subjects? The answer is, of course, yes. Right. And the way that then some Marxists have subsequently read this is to say, well, okay, so what the text is saying is that political emancipation isn't enough. We need to get beyond that. I, I agree with that. I think that's pretty obvious from the text. Uh, and then they take it a step further and they say, and what the text is actually saying is that everybody needs to give up particular identities mm -hmm. and become universal uh, in order to, you know, be real humans or something. And that's kind of what the text is saying, but it's not actually saying that. So that's one way of interpreting the text. The other way of interpreting the text, which is um, quite frankly uh, offensive, and this is actually what you would find if you, if you read this text in the Marx and Engels reader, which is, I think, how most people uh, now end up encountering it, is the preface says, uh, you know, basically the text looks really anti-Semitic, but just like we were talking about before with Debord, if you take the word 
Jew anytime you see it in the text and replace it with the word capitalist, all of a sudden the text makes sense. So a reverse uh, Pierre Guillaume, basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the argument uh, then becomes that, well, Marx isn't really talking about Jews, which is a very, very, very hard argument to support uh, <laughs> given the text. And the title. Yeah. Right. So you, you have this thing, again, it's, and it's true. Marx is doing something much more complicated uh, with Christianity and Judaism and the state than what these words just would superficially suggest. But he is still talking about Jews, right? And he is still talking about Judaism. And what Marx is actually sort of striving to show us here, and um, as far as I can tell, none of the secondary literature actually makes this argument uh, other than me, I guess, mm -hmm. um, is that what Marx is actually arguing is the thing that anti-Semites are identifying and then attacking is actually bourgeois civil society itself. And the point is not that the Jews are a special group within bourgeois civil society or something like that, or even a particular class. It's that the way that our society is structured, which entails, and he takes this from Hegel, this split between the idea of the state and the idea of the civil society, right? Which just to be clear also in German, the way that these terms work is different than the way they work in English. So, you know, what corresponds to the state is the citizen. What corresponds to civil society is the member of civil society. Okay, that's fine. But in German, what it actually says is the member of the state is the citizen and the member of society is the bourgeois, mm. right? Because in German, civil society is literally bourgeois society. Yeah, bur that's, that's what bourgeois means. society, yeah. Right. So when Marx is, what Marx is doing here is he's not critiquing capitalism yet because that's not really where Marx is as a philosopher yet. Uh, he eventually goes there. But what he's doing is he's critiquing civil society, right? He's critiquing the idea of civil society and the idea of the state at the same time, right? Because what people previously, like Bauer, are doing is they choose this or that position. And they say, well, one of them is good and real and right, and one of them is bad, right? So in the case of Christianity, and this is in Feuerbach, and this, I think, is what actually bears the heaviest on the Marxist tradition itself, right? You have this idea that Christianity is fake. Religion is fake. It's a lie. And we have to critique and attack religion because if we get rid of the lie, we'll reveal the truth, mm. right? So this is, Lenin is the strongest proponent of this within the Marxist tradition. And a lot of MLs uh, will argue that today. Right. And you have a, you have a ton of people who, you know, still, I, I think it's a very common argument from people who might not have a particularly sophisticated political analysis. Uh, and you see this especially in punk, right? That like, oh, you have to attack religion. You know, because religion is what poisons people's minds and it makes them see the world badly. And they therefore like, you know, miss what's really going on. It's like that band like, called Religion is Bad. <laughs> I think they're called pop punk band. One of my favorite bands, actually. Nice. Uh, so this is exactly the position that Feuerbach has that Marx critiques, right? That religion is bad. It just sort of is this thing that floats over the world and mystifies and hides it somehow, right? And this eventually, uh, Marx's critique of this or whatever, eventually becomes the critique of ideology. And I think this is, this is super important. Um, 
ideology in Marx, right, is the mode in which something shows up. So following Marx, we have to understand the mode of appearance of something, the way it shows up, and its essence are connected in some way. Right? They actually have a relationship to one another. So it's not a question of one being fake and the other one being real. Right? That's not the point of the distinction. A mode of appearance is real. It has real effects, but it just simultaneously is hiding something even while it reveals some other things. So this is one of the most systematic distortions that you find in Marxism, right? That, uh, that there's something that's mystifying the real relations of society or something like that. And that's the problem. You can just criticize it. Uh, and this is why, you know, Marx starts with Feuerbach because he sees Feuerbach as the best expression of this. Uh, you know, it's the absolute end of German idealism as a sort of way of thinking about the world and where you have to break in order to get into like the real good shit. Right. And when he's criticizing Feuerbach, and I think this is actually quite important, uh, the first thesis on Feuerbach, which, you know, people know the last one, they don't know the first one. The first one says that uh, Feuerbach basically misses the relationship between the abstract and the concrete, right? The, you know, ideological and the real or something like that, because he has no way of thinking about the world except to think of practice as uh, quote, having a dirty Judaical manifestation. Oof, Maron. Right. So there's already this tradition built in to sort of the left, like because these people are left, right? By any definition in Germany at the time, they are cutting edge thinkers. And what they say basically is, and Marx makes this clear as he walks us through in the essay, is that civil society, as they conceive of it, is Jewish. And what Marx then argues, unlike, uh, unlike Bauer and unlike some of these other people, is he basically says, rather than the state being the higher sort of community of man, you know, man as a citizen in a species being is the term he uses. Uh, he takes that from Feuerbach, right? In man in a real community, the state as that isn't actually that. The state as we have it and the state as we understand it, the state as a social formation, actually presupposes every single bad thing that we don't like about civil society, right? And he walks us through this. He says, uh, you know, specific, he starts with religion. He says, look, freedom of religion doesn't mean that the state has abolished religion. It just means that anybody can be any religion they want. And he says... When the state says, uh, you know, abolishes by the same token, when it abolishes the qualification of property rights uh, for voting, that doesn't abolish private property. It lets private property do its thing. It lets private property become more itself, in other words. Right. So what the political revolutions in Europe do is they create this situation in which you have the state and you have civil society, which appears as something distinct from it. But the really insidious part is that the state actually produces civil society. It constantly is reconstituting it. And it does this through things like property laws, right? And in so doing, you end up with this sort of weird position where it becomes possible from the perspective of the state to criticize aspects of civil society. And what Marx does is he 
essentially turns the whole thing upside down. And he says, when you are talking about Jews and you're talking about Judaism, what you're actually talking about is civil society. So Marx isn't just saying, look, you believe in this ideal of the state. The state is so good. It's so great. Yeah, okay. And that's wrong. He says, not only is your ideal of the state wrong, but it's not just that I can then say, okay, your idea of the state is wrong because what's really real is civil society. He says, your ideal of the state is wrong. It produces civil society and civil society itself is actually a problem, right? It's not just something that we can take as a given and normal and just waiting there to be discovered. And the mistake that Bauer and all these other guys make is they look out at civil society and they say, ah, Judaism, right? Because this is where people are huckstering, they're cheating each other, they're acting as individuals, they only talk about business, they only want to talk about property. Uh, you know, men mistreat each other, they treat each other as and, means and not ends. And to jump uh, in, the, the reason why they do this is because Jewish people, having achieved these jobs in finance and mercantilism, appear at the avant-garde of civil society, right? I mean, I think you can argue that, but I, I'm not actually... I, I personally am that one. I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, the important thing here, and this is tied to what Andy was saying and what Dave was saying, is that there's a shift that happens, not just a semantic shift, but an ideological shift through the course of the 19th century as the capitalist mode of production it's in its industrial and also its financial form uh, continues apace and starts to really solidify itself into basically global modern capitalism as we understand it today. Many of the old tropes against uh, Jews as usurers, against Jews as uh, money-grabbing merchants, and against Judaism itself as, uh, as a religion, the sort of anti-Judaic, anti-usury, anti-Semitism of the medieval period, uh, with the development of capitalism, starts to take on a whole different, uh, a whole different feel and a whole different ideology. This is the birth of modern anti-Semitism, which uh, is an anti-Semitism adequate to critiquing the sort of uh, vast changes that are happening in European society at this time, not just in the economy, not just with the rise of industrial and finance capital, but also in terms of the acids of modernity and the corrosion of community that arises out of capitalism. But modern anti-Semitism uh, tries to, it obviously fails to because it's false, but tries to create a critique of capitalism that bases all of these changes on the Jewish people themselves, not even uh, on Judaism, but as Jews as this like personal outside force, this concrete outside force that works within communities and across communities and across nations in order to undermine what would otherwise be a good civil society, an industrious civil society. So there's two anti-Semitisms and the old tropes from the Middle Ages kind of bleed out into this modern 19th century anti-Semitism, but they're not coterminous with each other. I, yeah, I think that's right. And it's funny that you say bleed because, of course, the uh, blood plays a pretty strong role in the way that Jews are interpreted uh, in the medieval period and then starting with the Spanish Inquisition as a race, right? Sangria, um, pure, yeah. Right, so there's two things. The, the great virtue of the Marx text is it shows us that there's actually something about capitalist society right, about bourgeois civil society and the state, which together are parts of what we would understand as capitalist society, that makes it so something like anti-Semitism is a reasonable explanation mm. for the world. And I don't mean reasonable like correct or smart or 
whatever. It's a plausible right? form Though, of appearance of the contradictions of capital. Right. So it's worth, I think it's worth mentioning, right, that Marx, again, when he's talking, the way this comes up is he's looking at people that he thinks are the smartest people in Germany, and they're anti-Semites. So it's not a question of, you know, is this super stupid or not? In fact, it's quite the opposite. The sort of issue is there's something about our society that makes it so anti-Semitism is actually a credible explanation. Right. Otherwise, smart then, people who I know who are liberal and want a republic in Germany and, and want free speech, they even they are uh, imbued with this anti-Semitism because it seems plausible. But again, we're talking about structural anti-Semitism. So we're not just talking about people who blame the Jews on everything, but people who blame certain shadowy organizations for everything, who blame usury for everything. Anytime you pinpoint something that's historically been blamed on the Jews as the root cause of capitalism's problems, you're playing into this anti-Semitic structure, even if you are not consciously doing it. And this is the, the postponed thing that we'll talk a little bit more about in a second. Yeah, no, and I, I think that the structural part is really important because uh, part of the way that this plays out, and this is, this is where I break, I think, with pre-existing uh, attempts through a kind of Marxian lens to think about this, is I think that there's a tendency to when we're trying to do a materialist analysis, and you can see this a little bit in uh, in Auschwitz, The Great Alibi, right? The way that people want to do the materialism is to say, well, there's a group of people, and they do stuff, and then it's generalized to all of the people who have some of those traits, right? So it's basically it becomes an argument about how, like, okay, well some Jews are rich and some Jews are bankers and some Jews control the media and some Jews are in the state and whatever. And then it becomes a generalization, right? So the explanation becomes, well, the reason anti-Semitism, you know, is a thing is because Jews do all this stuff. And then we look at it and we say, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I see the Jews because they they stand out in some way. They're a little different. And therefore I assume, ah, Everybody doing these things I don't like is Jewish. And I don't think that's what's happening. And I don't think that that's, I think that Marx is making it pretty clear that that's not what's happening. And I think that historically, one of the ways I'm really confident that this isn't happening is anti-Semitism is often at its most virulent when there are no Jews, mm. right? So you don't actually need to have Jews hanging around and doing stuff in order to have anti-Semitism. And that's one of the things that's really bizarre about anti-Semitism as a theory, uh, because it sort of allows of for this narrative structure of this big, global, powerful conspiracy that's sort of independent of what anybody is actually doing. Can you give an example of, of what you mean by that? Like, wh uh, There I are parts of the world where there's rampant anti-Semitism, but people don't actually interact with Jews on a daily basis, right? Or mm -hmm. the character of their anti-Semitism uh, might not actually have any bearing on the status of Jews in that society. Mm -hmm. So, for example, right, um, in the case of Europe, I mean, right, uh, in the lead up to World War II, yes, there was a professional class of Jews in Germany who were mostly pretty assimilated. The majority of Jews coming from Eastern Europe uh, with the increase in anti-Semitic violence uh, in what's now, you know, parts of uh, Ukraine and uh, Belarus and Russia and so on, the immigrants coming from there were mostly poor peasants. Right. So there's nothing about them that actually has anything to do with this sort of narrative structure of uh, global finance and state control and things like that. But one of the powerful things about this modern anti-Semitism that we're talking about the development of is that 
the Jew, as it were, can be um, like it, it's got a, an antimony, right? So the Jew can be the the poor peasant, or or and the or the rich capitalist. The Jew can be uh, controlling international finance and also international communism at the same time. The Jew is weak, but the Jew is also strong. I mean, there's. At the root of of this uh, of this ideology of of modern anti-Semitism, there's like uh, the ability for Jewishness to represent like many things at once. Yeah, and I think and I think to me that's one of the strongest cases for uh, the argument that what Judaism is primarily standing in for is the contradictions of civil society. Yeah, of capitalism. Good way to take us to the Moisha Postone essay. Andy, you want to start on this? I think we've mentioned this uh, a bunch of times on the show. Um, Dave, you might have some critique, and we might have some critiques too, but this is kind of a foundational text for trying to understand not just modern anti-Semitism, but Nazi anti-Semitism and the Shoah through the eyes of um, basically the dual character of the expression of the commodity, the, the, basically the, the structure of value. Uh, in society. So, Andy, you got a quote for us? Yeah, well, he's he really is responding to this debate so far with the Bordigist uh, essay saying that anti-Semitism is incidental to the question of the Holocaust has to be contextualized purely by capitalism. And then this kind of post-war anti-fascism that s- sees the show as like standing outside of of capitalism in a way as like a unique kind of atrocity. So he says, in comprehending anti-Semitism as peripheral, rather as a central moment of national socialism, the left has also obscured an intrinsic relationship between the two. Both of these positions understand modern anti-Semitism as anti-Jewish prejudice, as a particular example of racism in general. Their stresses on the mass psychological nature of anti-Semitism, considering the Holocaust from a socioeconomic and socio-historical investigations of National Socialism. The Holocaust, however, cannot be understood as long as anti-Semitism is viewed as an example of racism in general, and so long as Nazism is conceived of only in terms of big capital as a terroristic bureaucratic police state. So he goes on to explain why anti-Semitism is is a kind of unique channel for anti-capitalist energies, and instead of pulling out other quotes from this essay, everybody should just read it. Uh, I found a footnote in uh, Time, Labor, Social Domination, Postone's masterwork, where he summarizes it really nicely. He says, he analyzes modern anti-Semitism with reference to this quasi-natural opposition in capitalist society between a concrete natural sphere of social life and an abstract universal one. The opposition of its abstracts and the concrete dimensions allows capitalism to be perceived as understood in terms of its abstract dimension alone. Its concrete dimension can thereby be apprehended as non-capitalist. Modern anti-Semitism can be understood as a fetishized, one-sided form of anti-capitalism that grasps capitalism in terms of its abstract dimension alone and biologistically identifies that dimension with the Jews and the concrete dimension of capitalism with the Aryans. And Postone says in the in the essay, he says that fascist anti-modernism, right, this anti-modern tendency within the Nazis, it could be a possible explanation for why both communists and plutocrats were charged with being controlled by this Jewish international. But then why was ultimately big industrial capital spared this critique in fascist Germany? As Andy was saying, like, if you if you. If you if you try to like separate these are, these are holes, but the abstract and the concrete from capital, and you only critique money, 
right, and you only critique finance, you're not only doing a one-sided um, critique of capital, but also this abstraction needs to find its concrete, and the concrete that it found was in the Jewish people themselves. I think that's right. And it's one of the things that's really striking. You know, when you look at this um, this question of particularly religion in relation to capitalism, something that's really, to me, fascinating is that you have basically two different positions and they have actually almost the opposite. They have the opposite kind of conclusion. One is that capitalism is fundamentally Protestant, right? Most famously uh, advanced by Weber. Uh, and in that case, the critique is basically you have this real thing, capitalism, and then you have this ideological structure that makes capitalism seem good, right? You know, if you save and you're thrifty and blah, 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 you'll get heaven, which is the same thing as saving money and blah, 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 right? And then you have the other version of this, which says capitalism is actually fundamentally Jewish. And the thing that's funny to me about this is that that argument actually is not saying that Judaism is like an ideological stand-in for capitalism. It's saying the opposite, right? It's saying that capitalism is this thing, is a name that we give for this thing that really is better explained and is concrete dimension by the activity of Jews. And I just think this is a, this is a pretty interesting distinction. Uh, and it speaks to this, you know, this sort of topsy-turvy, uh, to use someone else's phrase, uh, kind of relationship that you have then between uh, the abstract and the concrete, which is to say like actual social determinations and ideas about social determinations that are specific to capitalism, right? There's a reason that anti-Semitism pops off much like Sean was saying before and becomes, you know, a, a and I, we have a word for it, right? Anti-Semitism, as opposed to just not liking Jews coined by people who are anti-Semites right in this moment where capital is consolidating itself the nation state is consolidating itself as a form. Uh, and, you know, it's in this moment that the Jew appears not just as, you know, a problem, but as the problem, right? If there is an issue with modernity, if there is an issue with the way that our world is constructed, it's the Jews. And it's always in this sort of behind the scenes, man behind the curtain. Uh, again, like it says in the post essay, you know, super weak, you know, Jews are effeminate and not particularly physically virile, et cetera, but also hyper-powerful, right? The enemy is both too weak and too strong. Yeah, and just to remind people, you know, going back to uh, doing the work with capital, uh, these different moments of capital, uh, whether it's in the concrete form of the commodity or it's in the abstract money form, are parts of, a, of the same whole. Right? They're parts of the same process, of the same relationship, various relationships of production. And so it's, this, this is why this anti-Semitism seems, as Andy was saying before, plausible. It, it did in the Third Reich, and then you hear a lot of people, some people on the left, some liberals saying this today, that there's like good national industrial capitalism on the one side, then there's bad financial international capitalism on the other side. And the reason why that's plausible is because it's a one-sided critique. Even if you were to, of course, like tame finance or get rid of finance capital, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be solving the problem. 
And it so easily turns into this structural anti-Semitism because this form of ideology of anti-Semitism and the practice that arises from this structural anti-Semitism has no solution to the capitalism question. Right? You cannot solve capital simply by critiquing money, simply by critiquing finance. You have to have this more holistic understanding of, the, of capitalism as a totality. So anti-Semitism, of course, besides us not liking it, also fails on its own terms. So obviously what's been in the news recently is this Labor Party purge of uh, left-wing anti-Zionist members of the Labor Party. And at this point, as far as I can tell, it's purely a reaction to Corbynism. It's the center of the Labor Party and the, the right wing in general um, trying to clamp down on the left, trying to get the, the trots out of labor. But there are some origins of it that were related to real moments of anti-Semitism, and Corbyn has admitted this. Labor, of course, has a lot of left-wing cranks and are kind of prone to these arguments about Israel being the like overlord government, being the sole imperialist power in the world. Because they come to this coalition through anti-imperialism, which is not anti-capitalism and can be uh, anti-Semitic as well. Yeah, I mean, some of them are like kind of wingnut Trotskyists. Some of them are conspiracy theorists, like David Icke kind of people. And those people, Corbyn kicked those people out of the party in 2016, as far as I can tell. And so the purge since then has been targeted against people who pointed out that this wasn't really about anti-Semitism. It was about removing parts of the left. So I think when we're, we're quick to point out how Zionists use anti-Semitism as a way to deflect any kind of criticism of Israel whatsoever, we shouldn't forget that there are ways of talking about Israel that do uh, rely on structural anti-Semitism. And this is just my anecdotal experience. I think this was more of a problem 10 years ago than it is now, at least in the United States, and I think in England too. I think people have kind of matured on this question to some extent, but it doesn't mean that there isn't, that it's impossible to critique Israel in an anti-Semitic way, obviously. I think most people know that at this point. Kind of a harder question though, uh, and this is kind of New York specific, is when we're talking about landlords, specifically in Brooklyn, um, because uh, a lot of landlords are Orthodox Jewish, and there's this impression that it's just like the natural condition. People say like, "Oh yeah, I've got a shitty landlord." You know, he's Jewish, of course. Like, it's it's a very common way for people to be just explicitly say things that in any other context would just be like clearly anti-Semitic, but they can do it because they're talking about this one closed religious sect. And it allows people to imagine that the people in this sect are just like the species of landlords. Mm. And they're, they're not. Like, they're actually a very poor community. But just like what we were talking about before with this, the appearance, they appear to us only as landlords. We only interact with them when we're interacting with our landlord. So we imagine that they're all landlords. This, this is like a window into the anti-Semitism of earlier eras. And so... There's been a lot of violence against Orthodox Jews in the last couple of years. There's been uh, there's a shooting in uh, Jersey City. There's been cases of of kids like running up and punching Orthodox Jews, uh, like sucker punching them. There was a riot um, in Crown Heights, I think, in 1990 yeah. um, between its black residents and its Orthodox Jewish residents. A really horrible story. Fortunately, there hasn't been a riot like that since, but. Those tensions still exist. Unfortunately, this problem is not going to be solved unless there's a unless there's some way that to, to give voice to people who understand that these tensions don't come from just like 
these two groups of people don't like each other because they're yeah. different. It's just prejudice. But because there's a hatred towards landlordism and that landlords are, then Jews are fetishized as landlords. And as long as we deny that there is a class tension between landlords and tenants, and we just focus on the racial aspect of the tension, then the racial aspect of the tension is all that's ever going to exist, is all that's ever going to manifest. Very well said. So the essence of uh, rentierism in New York City at this moment has the form of appearance of Orthodox uh, Judaism. What do you got to say to that, Dave? I mean, that strikes me as basically right. Uh, I think in this instance, that seems like a pretty straightforward relationship. Uh, The question, though, of course, is then what to do about it, right? Um, Because the problem on some level is once anti-Semitism has become the mode of explanation, uh, it's often not really counterable by um, appeal to facts, right? Saying like, oh, well, most Orthodox Jews are poor doesn't necessarily like diminish in any way the hatred that you feel when your landlord comes to knock on your door and is like, where's the rent? Yeah, but it's the same problem with any kind of racism. You have to start problematizing that kind of thinking. And for example, you can say that the people who suffer the most from from, like a a closed religious community are people who grow up in those communities and are forced to like never leave those communities and are like not allowed to have the kind of education they need to be able to leave, even if they wanted to. I, I, I've got an Orthodox friend who's like, yeah, I hate landlords too. I, like, I've got an Orthodox landlord and he sucks. <laughs> like, the, we can, you can see the commonality of the problems that we have and the problems that normal Orthodox Jewish people have. Yeah, and, and I would say too that once you internalize the postponed critique, and I think the listeners have you know, the understanding of where it comes from, you start to see this structural anti-Semitic, uh, not even anti-capitalism, like anti, anti-bourgeoisism or something all over, not just sometimes in the left, but all over right-wing tropes and all over conspiracy theories especially, because at the heart of almost every single conspiracy theory is a small cabal of shadowy, secret, often financiers who have inordinate control over the events of the world and ultimately like, are the source of the bad, are the source of the abstract, are the source that ultimately, I guess, we need to get rid of as a, as a group of people. And so this stuff, we're, we're just lousy with this stuff in capitalist society because without our own critique, without critiquing the, uh, the dual character of the capital form, uh, people are left with uh, explanations that seem plausible and that are pushed most vociferously. And if you turn on any, you go on YouTube, any conspiracy theorist video, it, it might not be, uh, might not say it's the Jews, although it might, but it's going to talk about a shadowy cabal, which is structurally anti-Semitic and toxic. And I think this is one of the places where the Marxist tradition is uh, unfortunately incredibly weak. And so are most traditions of thinking about this stuff, right? So you have this young Marx where he's really taking seriously this state civil society thing. And then you have later Marx who is still talking about the state in a certain sense, but he, you know, he says in his manuscripts, "Eh, I got to write something about this. And then he doesn't, he dies. Uh, And, you know, I, I've I've talked to Post Stone about this actually. Uh, You know, the state is sort of not, present as much as one would hope, I think, in his analysis of anti-Semitism either. And I think the young Marx does a really good job of making that front and center because this kind of 
conspiratorial mode of thinking, right, isn't, it is, you know, it's obviously related to capitalism. There's no question about this. It's part of capitalism, full stop, period, right? But the question of democracy, I think, is actually a pretty important one when we're talking about this, because the opposition that you're pointing to, right, is the opposition between the people and the elites. And democracy as a system, right, and liberalism, to be, like, even more specific about it, presupposes that the source of sovereignty is the people, right? So you have this problem where there's the real people, and then there's the fake, evil, bad, usurious, uh, you know, whatever, elites. The George Soros. So there's sort of an internal structure of politics that we're talking about here that lends itself to these types of ideas, right? That an appeal to democracy doesn't actually really get us out of the problem, right? And what it often does is it shifts, and it just says, well, the real elites are this group, that group, or the other group. And one of the you know, great virtues of Poston's analysis of capitalist society, which I know you guys have talked about on the show, is to say that capitalism is a system of constraints for everybody, including the capitalist. It's better to be a capitalist than it is to be a proletarian in a capitalist society. But the capitalist is still behaving and acting according to uh, certain laws and certain sort of internal dynamics of capitalism itself. Right? Wearing by the, the uh, character mask of capital. Right. And by the same token, we have this structure in politics and in democracy. And the left is, of course, just as the left and the right do this equally. The difference is in this country, the right has only started doing it recently, right? Which is this appeal to the real hardworking man right. versus everybody else. Uh, and we have to be really, really careful then when we try to form these kinds of coalitions and we try to think about ways in order to get out of the nightmare that we currently live in to not reproduce a structure that can very, very quickly, sort of at the turn of uh, the turn of a dime or whatever the expression is, uh, turn into, again, just another way of rearticulating this partial critique that holds up the real against the false. Right. Like the, the, there are workers who really make things and then there are people who just make make money out of more money. Uh, I'll, I'll right. be completely honest about where I came up with the idea for this show. And it was, um, as as most things, something talked about on Twitter. And you're starting to see the rise of not an explicitly anti-Semitic movement on the populist left slash right, like weird combination of uh, Pepe Twitter and like weird Facebook groups. Uh, even some good ones, uh, left ones, you're starting to see the rise of like a, I think a relatively dangerous or at least potentially dangerous uh, producerist movement uh, that talks about a certain group of people who are leeching off the rest of society. Uh, those people are often called the professional managerial class and counterposing them to hardworking, good value producing Americans and trying to basically almost almost repeating this the, all the shit that we're talking about this structural anti-semitic argument but now with like the top 20% of society allegedly against the bottom 80%. I just wanted to close it out with like one broader point that you know I I don't think that like all conspiracy theories are necessarily structurally anti-semitic or explicitly anti-semitic uh, or even they're not necessarily conspiracy theories. Like I've noticed this kind of automatic thinking a lot on the left of if there's some kind of division, if there's like a tendency or a group that is acting strangely, if if somebody is making uh, uh, points that are inconvenient, if if something happens that can't, people can't explain, they're quick to blame some uh, intelligence agency or they'll say, oh, this is clearly the feds or something like that. 
or there's people who think that this is a conspiracy of like Putin or, you know, this person's actually working with the fascists behind the scenes as a red brown alliance. Um, this kind of thinking is really contrary to the way that I think we should try to approach society when we're trying to critique it as, as Marxists or as revolutionaries or whatever. And uh, there's a quote from La Banquise that I like that kind of sums this up. Conspiracy theory starts from the principle that everything hides its opposite. It assumes there is a fake truth and those who produced this fake, incapable of understanding the basis of the society, working, buying, selling, going where the state official tells us to go. It unearths the document supposed to prove the rapacity of the boss, the corruption of the mayor, the shady past of the statesman, the infamous sex life of the billionaire, and of course, some secret funds. Whether it uncovers the real masters of the world, mafia or Moscow gold, the trilateral commission, the Mooney sect or the Opus Dei, Mossad agents or Stasi moles, this point of view puts together segmented facts. It is this impoverished vision which reached the high point of character in the recent inquisitorial delirium. When the brain has faith in occult powers, it short circuits. Damn, Dove. All right, on that note, I feel like we could probably be talking about this for hours and hours, but uh, it is Christmas, and uh, I think uh, Santa didn't take his cookies, so we're going to pour some milk, and the three of us just sit down and have a a wonderful Christmas time. Yeah, thanks. Uh, It was really nice spending uh, Christmas with with you, Dave, with you, Sean, uh, with uh, Santa up there. I think he's still on the roof for some reason. With Bordiga, who's kind of like Santa himself in his armchair. I think Santa lost his bike. (laughs) And of course, with Rabbi Pastone. Happy Hanukkah to you. All right. So long, folks. Thanks again, Dave. Thanks, guys. The twinkle in his eye. Merry Christmas to all. Now you're all gonna die. The night Santa went crazy. The night Saint Nick went insane. Realized he'd been getting the raw deal. Some finally must have snapped in his brain. Well, the workshop is gone now. He decided to bomb it. Everywhere you'll find pieces of Cupid and Elves hostage, and he ground up poor Rudolph into reindeer sausage. He got dancer in Prancer with an old German Luger, and he slashed up Dasher just like Freddy Krueger. And he picked up a flamethrower and a barbecue blitzer, and he took a big bite and said it tastes just like chicken. Such a jolly guy.